This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle market trends every week on Wharton Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 111. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Nick Rusinoff, expert on currency research. That's what you see for those safe haven currencies is hedging the FX risk is actually exposing you to more risk. Or even the head of the Digital India Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run and the Future for Investors. Please note, I'm registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. The discussion is not tied to the offers of investment products, and the views of our guests are their own, and not those of Wisdom Tree's affiliates. We're going to have a really interesting show today. Uh, in our studio for the hour is Dan David, co-founder of Geo Investing, also now running for Congress uh, in the district, very close to, to my heart here in, Phil, uh, in Montgomery County. Uh, Dan, welcome to our studio. Thank you for having me. Uh, professor is back from vacation. You've been traveling for two weeks over in Europe. Professor, we're going to get you for some commentary, get you to, to stick with us for, I think, the first part of the show here. Um, maybe sort of give us your reflection. We haven't talked to you in a little while. How, what's yeah. been happening in, in the markets? Uh, we, you were leaving just as, as Powell was having his, his testimony. And maybe right. any thoughts on just what's been happening in, in the economy, interest rates, uh, your views? Yeah, we had a wonderful uh, two-week uh uh, riverboat cruise down the Danube from Budapest uh, all the way to the Black Sea. Usually the lower Danube is not as popular as the upper Danube in touring. Uh, and we, we went through five countries. It was really quite a quite an interesting experience. One of the big surprises was the Internet was actually quite good on the boat. <laughs> so I really was able to uh, to keep up with uh, uh, what, uh, what transpired. Um, no big surprise. I, I listened uh, to his, his news conference. Um, you know, it's uh, you know pretty much the the standard line. I, I, I actually thought that Steve Leisman, uh, you know, who's a chief economist CNBC, asked an interesting question, and and that is that uh, you know none of the Fed people had uh, penciled in uh, you know over uh, you know three percent GDP growth. Uh, you know, which is what the, the Trump administration is uh, is looking for, and may get this year. Interestingly enough, I want to I want to talk about that. Um, but he said, yeah, we well, said uh, you know it could happen, but we're waiting to actually see the signs that it will, and rather than try to project uh, anything that we don't now see in the data. Um, but basically, you know, well, we have what do we have today. We had some interesting uh, uh, data uh, come out. We had. Uh, the CPI, the uh, excuse me, the personal consumption deflator, which is the price index that the Fed uses, uh, and its goal is two percent, and it hit two percent year over year for the first time in six years. We finally got up to the the Fed's goal. Now, of course, getting there doesn't mean staying there, and the question is, are we going to are we going to go uh, over that amount? We also got some pretty weak uh, consumption. Uh, data um, for uh, for the month of May, 
and uh, GDP estimates, which were running as high as five to five and a half percent for the second quarter uh, this morning, were marked down now uh, more into the four four percent uh, uh, region. Uh, actually, the uh, the uh, forecaster I follow actually thinks it's uh, going to be between four and a half and five, which is still a, an extremely uh, a very very good rate. As you know, the um, first quarter was just revised down a couple of tenths. We learned that a couple of days ago, down to two. But, um, uh, you know, if we get over uh, five um, um, or get over four, actually, we're over 3% for the first half of the year. So we, we are, uh, at least uh, for a couple of quarters, running into that 3%. Uh, the most interesting data coming up, of course, is a week from today uh, when we're going to get the June Employment report, you know, that, uh, again, I mean, the early estimate is payroll is up 190,000. I pointed out many, many times that uh, that's almost 100,000 over what the economy produces in terms of workers itself. Uh, that could further tighten the uh, unemployment rate. Um, uh, and if we see it tick down from 3.8 to 3.7, it will be nearly a 50-year low. Um Current estimates are it'll stay at, at 3.8, but one actually, uh, if you did the exact number last month, it was at like 3.76, so it was actually almost 3.7 last time. And again, the importance of that is as that unemployment rate's tighter and tighter, wage increases, they are increasing. We are finally seeing wage inflation. Now, you know, part of that is a productivity boost. It, it looks pretty good this quarter, but most of it is just very, very tight labor markets. And that, of course, is the reason why I still project that the Fed will be on an aggressive path throughout this year. And now, we, Professor, you talked about the sort of state of the economy. And as and one of the things, you know, coming into this year, you thought this year was going to be a little bit of a volatile year. And you talked about the Fed increasing rates is one of it. But then you also talked about the midterm elections, which is one yeah. to be very topical for our show and discussion with Dan here. Um, yeah. Now, I mean, I, I, I think this whole Supreme Court is really uh, going to be, be throwing a lot of uncertainty into this midterm election. Um, I, I really want to hear what Dan has to say, whether he thinks that Trump will try to get a nominee approved by the Senate before uh, this Congress adjourns. Um, and, um, uh, you know, would, would this... Uh, revitalize the Democratic base to come out in uh, November and, um, uh, and if they don't like the nominee or feel he or she is, is too conservative uh, and actually produce uh, a, a, dem a Democratic surprise. I, I think that, the, you know, this is really very, very important, even aside from what a conservative justice means for not just the next year, five years or 10 years, but maybe 20, 30, 40 years uh, going into the uh, into the future, which is uh, just another thing. So there's political ramifications. Uh, there's the state of the court. I, I think, um, yeah, I think I think Kennedy's uh, resignation, although it wasn't completely unanticipated, has really focused uh, a lot of these political issues uh, that I think um, are are really going to make a very uh, hot midterm uh, election. So no, no, I, I saw definitely you... want to hear what. I want to hear what Dan has to say about uh, uh, his, his thoughts on uh, what might uh, uh, might happen uh, there. And of course, 
you know, ongoing, uh, we, we have, everyone knows trade is volatile. Um, you know, this is the part of the uh, Trump agenda I do not like. And, uh, I mean, it, there's possible of a good outcome and negotiation with China and better and one in protection of intellectual property. I'm hoping for that outcome. Um, but it's no, it's not a slam dunk that that, uh, will be the outcome. So that does throw uh, uncertainty. And it, it really, I think a lot of, uh, well, at least what we see, uh, the daily volatility in, in the market is, is uh, you know, is very geared to the ups and downs of, of the uh, trade issue. Well, let me bring in our guest, Dan David. Welcome to our studio here on, on Warren's campus. Thank you. I should say welcome back. You spent some time here at the Wharton Executive Education Program. So you yeah. return guests back to Wharton. Um, but maybe- it's a great you know, program, by the way. Very good. Let me sort of just reintroduce you. So you're co-founder of GeoInvesting, an equities research firm based in Skipack, uh, Pennsylvania here. Uh, you're regarded as a leader in U.S. microcap China sectors, also featured in the documentary China Hustle. So so this idea of the China tariffs and, and the research around China is sort of interesting and timely. Um, maybe you could sort of walk us through a little bit about your story, how you went from private business, GeoInvesting, what got you focused on China to now running for Congress here in the Forest District in Pennsylvania? Well, sure. Uh, for I, I was born and raised in Flint, Michigan, uh, for the first 22 years of my life, and I matriculated here around 1995-ish, uh, and I, I was working in the retail industry as a senior executive, uh, traveling the country. I had 80 million dollars worth of responsibility uh, up until 2006 when I decided to start my partnership with then now Geo Investing and my partner Maj. Uh, and that was providing research to companies that were largely uncovered. Uh, you know, you could get any kind of research you wanted on IBM in 2006 and seven, and uh, Google and whoever else. But uh, some of these smaller mid-cap companies, people kept calling us and saying, you're so good at what you do, give us your research. It took a lot of time. We ended up putting it on a website, and that was the idea of geo-investing. And it was all about long research. It was all about investing. None of it had anything to do with shorting. Uh, neither my, or my, me or my partner ever shorted uh, until 2011, actually. Uh, so it was, it, it was good times in 2006 and seven in investing. Uh, 2008 was, was a tough year, you might have heard. Uh, <laughs> Crisis. Slightly tough, Dan. Yeah, yeah. It was. I used to, it's the beginning of the biggest bear market in seventy-five years, so I would say yes. Yeah, and and, geez, looking back, I mean, we we all should have really, really saw that coming. And and what we what we did is we listened to investment bank analysts who, you know, I now know twelve and fifteen years later that are not disinterested, uh, and and are very much so uh, about getting banking deals, in my opinion. They call it a Chinese firewall between banking and the analyst, but that's more like a fern, not a firewall. Uh, the the buy-to-sell ratio in, what, uh, August to September 2008 was probably 90 to 1, I mean 90 to 10. Uh, so it's ridiculous. And, and, and that kind of opened up the idea that independent research firms that really weren't interested in doing financing for companies uh, and wouldn't cost their bank's business by giving poor ratings or sell ratings could be uh, um, more valuable than actual so-called analysts. So getting through the 2008 crisis, 
we really looked at the investing model that my partner had had for 20 years, and it was about value investing. And it really was deep dive research, what we consider deep dive research, and and, and kind of a ground-up approach and speaking to the CEOs and the CFOs and sometimes doing site visits and things of this nature, uh, channel checks, customers. And in 2009, those companies that, that floated to the top of all of our matrix, uh, you know, highest EPS growth, highest uh, re- revenue year-over-year growth, tended to be a China-based company listed on our U.S. exchanges. And we thought this was great. I mean – Here's this opportunity to to invest in this this emerging market uh, that we are friends with, and they're regulated by our regulators here in the United States, and, and we invested almost everything in 2009 into the the China space, and did very very well. Uh, picked up 229 uh, percent all along, uh, and then in 2010 there were some critics who who we, we would call short sellers, uh, that said some of the companies that maybe we had invested in or, or were looking at investing in were frauds. And me coming from the corporate world myself, I decided right away that these people were wrong and they were trying to spook the market and they were trying to scare American investors. And I was going to prove them wrong because we're entrepreneurs and we hired our own China team to go look at 30 companies. And they went and looked at 30 companies and came back and said the short sellers, the critics, are wrong. They're understating the problem. <laughs> Every one of the worse companies. Worse than even they said. It was worse than they could imagine. I mean, there were there were companies that were Potemkin villages that would really basically set up for a few days, do an investor roadshow for American investors coming in, and then the factory turns off. And we've got this on time lapse video. I mean, yeah, we, I, I saw that on TV. I yeah. mean, I, I forget, but. Uh, you know, you were on a program. Was it CNBC or 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 another one where they you, you actually showed there was like n- nothing happening outside of when you did your official visit because you have that time lapse uh, video of the whole plant area. Well, I, I think what you're referring to actually, we didn't do the visit, right? So we know that you can't do diligence in China by appointment. Because if you make an appointment, it's it's going to be a facade, and they, yeah. they can set that up well. So when we do our diligence there, it's not by appointment. But we had set up time-lapse surveillance on this company for, call it, 60 days. And we didn't know this was going to happen, but what we were showing was a factory that was not running at all. And then one day, some smoke started coming out of the smokestacks. And then the next day, some people started milling around and showing up. And we thought, well, okay, well, I guess they're they're opening up now. They're they're going to be the factory said they said they're going to be. And then the third day, uh, two busloads of American investors uh, get up. We didn't know they were coming. <laughs> they, they they come and they get off the bus and they walk around. And they take a tour and they they get on the bus. They leave and as soon as they leave, all the lights go off, the smoke stops, and all the employees leave. And 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 this happened much more often than you could possibly imagine. And it's cost. It's cost American taxpayers, uh, investors, pension funds, 401ks, um, billions. And, you know, I'm estimating the hundreds of billions. It's an ongoing fraud, by the way, because it's still not illegal for a person in China to steal from a person in the United States. There's no law that prevents them from doing this. So Mm -hmm. the money that they they stole and they steal, they keep. And... uh, 
they don't go to it's jail. Like, it's like penny stock operators back of 50, 100 years ago. I mean, right? Well, they, they could go to jail. Companies and and they're, they're really not their facades. Well, I mean, it, that, that still happens today here in the United States. But at least there's a chance somebody goes to jail and there's a clawback provision on, on getting some of the money back if, if you can find it. Um, you know, here... We know where the money is that they stole. It's in their bank account in China. We could actually see it. We just have no mechanism between the United States and China to get that money back. And that's why I started lobbying Congress. I mean, now when we look at the Shanghai Composite, I mean, I'm trying to get an idea. Uh, You're you're talking here about the small mid-cap area in China? No, I'm talking here in the United States. These, these. I mean, com- when you're talking about the Chinese companies that are facades. Yeah, but they listed uh, in the U.S. Are you? Are you? Are, uh, I mean, certainly not all of them. Is, is this pro- mostly in the very small cap area? Not at all. No, I would not say that. I would say that over the last ten years, after I, our company is is responsible for getting over a dozen companies kicked out of this country and delisted from our exchanges. Uh, others have done the same. Uh, you can point to $50 billion of empirically, there it is, fraud, but you can't point to how much insider trading happens in China, uh, you know, over a thousand different accounts, things of this nature. Well, let's talk about how you got from the the documentary China Hustle towards running for Congress and wanting to, like, how did that yeah. story come together that you now uh, went from it being in the private sector and investing sector and research to now trying to... It's a really different life being a politician versus uh, sort of investment research. Well, at some point in time, you know, first of all, we, we tried to go to the regulators and explain the problem. Uh, and we, we were nobody private citizens and, and, and we're not taking that seriously. Um, we released our research for free. We thought people would just pay us for research uh, as a service. And because it was critical, we were called short sellers, even though we didn't short. And then from then on, we just started shorting. And it wasn't until we started making millions where people said, oh, okay, smart guys. We'll listen to them. Uh, and now some of these people hire us. Um, it, but it, re- it, it occurred to us at, at some point in time that if, if the money can't be taken back from China and these people are not criminally prosecutable, where does the money come from that, that short sellers are making? And it comes from the American people. It comes from our neighbors, our family, American citizens, and pensions. And that didn't sit well with me. So I lobbied Congress for three years as a private citizen. Um, I'm spending $100,000 to speak to my own elected officials. Uh, and, and it didn't go well. And that's what the China hustle is all about. It's, it's about the actual fraud. And I can't emphasize it enough. This is a fraud in progress. It continues to this, to this day. Nothing has been done about it. But that, that members of Congress have been inactive on this issue to this day. It's still not illegal for a China-based person or company or CEO to steal from an American investor. And now, here we are 10 years later, there's $1 trillion worth of those stocks on our exchanges. And so you're, you're you know, running as a Republican, and a lot of the yeah. issues right now in the news every day this week has been China tariffs and yeah. the back and forth with China is – is that a policy you support? Like, how do you think about the, the China issue that we're negotiating with Trump and, and uh, the global leaders? Well, I mean, and look, notionally, uh, our presidents for the last 25 years have said we've been treated unfairly on trade with China. And, and it's been rhetoric because nobody's ever been able to do anything about it. Uh, we do understand that it will be a fight. And as we're saying here, there's uncertainty involved. 
and it will rile the markets at some point or another. That's just going to happen. But, but we have to remember that as Americans, when things get tough for us, we can't get weak in the knees when we know we're right. I don't know that tariffs were the right mechanism to use. Uh, it is a shot across the bow. It's a bit of a broadsword effect to something that a scalpel might be a better tool to use. I mean, if you just look at the U.S. Postal Treaty that we have with other countries, it treats China like a third world nation. So to ship something from China to New York under 4.4 pounds, it's something like three bucks or 330. To ship it back from New York to China, it's something like 50 bucks. Uh, and to ship it from South Carolina to New York within the same within the same country, it's something like six bucks. I, I you know my business is in Skipback. For for me to send something in Skipback, Priority Express to somebody else in Skipback, it can cost more than sending something from Beijing to Skipback because of this postal treaty. And our post office lost one hundred seventy million dollars last year. So it just makes no sense that a treaty that was negotiated originally in 1894, taken over by the U.N. in the 1900s, still treats China like, you know, it might be some third world country. If you looked at the average Chinese citizen doing business with the average American citizen, that postal treaty probably makes sense. But when you look at Alibaba and what they've been able to do as, as an e-commerce giant, and using AliExpress as their plug-and-play platform, now our small business owners here in the United States have to choose to ship from China, to buy products from China, ship from China, to here in the United States just to stay in business. It's cost us jobs. Let me, let me ask you, I, I, and just going back to the, the fraud issue. Yeah. I mean, and you mentioned Alibaba. Are, are you saying companies like Alibaba, Baidu, Tencent, yeah, they are frauds, uh, also, or 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 not. I don't. Well, I'm not. I'm not going to say they're not. Uh, I, I'm going to say that uh, I can't say that they are. Uh, I can say that um, I was, as I was explaining today, one of the things I learned at Wharton, uh, to put it in, in the most succinct way possible, is that math is science, uh, and it's empirical. Uh, two plus two is four. You know, two times five is ten. But accounting is an art form and it's not science and alibaba my problem with them isn't that i'm saying they're a fraud or not a fraud is their accounting is very opaque and very difficult to understand if you can do it then you know you're worth tens of millions of dollars because nobody else has been able to put it together uh there's no reason to have that many subsidiaries and be that opaque about your 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 infrastructure uh it can be difficult but amazon manages to do it let me ask you another question uh, uh, you know there's been a pretty big sell-off recently in mm -hmm. the Chinese market um, mm -hmm. I, I think the Shanghai composite are selling for 10 or 11 times what they what they are expected to report as this year's earnings mm -hmm. um, are you saying that it, it really should be a lot less than that I mean you saying I mean that's pretty darn cheap are we are we talking we're talking the fluff in the earnings i'm just saying would you just say to everyone uh, don't don't buy anything in china or don't buy an index fund that let's say indexes to china i would say i wouldn't buy any stock where the ceo of the company could steal it and they're not criminally prosecutable i wouldn't buy apples if 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 we're saying tim cook is not criminally prosecutable <laughs> 
about any foreign country? I mean, are they? Yeah, are they're, they they're, trying they're, to deal? No, it's not. I mean, that's a, that's a very good point. No, it is not. No, it is not. They're they're, but it is the the biggest by a factor of all the rest combined. So, I mean, that's where you would start. Uh, you, you, of course, would have problems in Pakistan and uh, and and maybe India and maybe some. You know, uh, if you're talking about the Middle East, you could have some problems there, but they're nowhere near at the scale. And and I'm not I'm not bashing China. I mean, I want our relationship to be good. I want it to be better. Our relationship with China is forever, uh, and it should be based on friendship and and mutual respect. If our people are stealing from them, our people should go to jail. Uh, my 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 biggest problem is is with the people here in the United States that are helping China-based operators steal from Americans. You know, you made you made a you know pretty strong statement stealing from investors, from pension funds, and all that. Uh, you mentioned 2006, so I am sitting in front of a Bloomberg machine. So I looked at the Shanghai Composite uh, since May of 2006. So we're talking about 12 years. Um, the average annual return in U.S. dollars uh, has been 10% a year. The S&P has been 8.8. So over the last 12 years, if you just bought uh, an index Chinese uh, stocks, you would have outperformed the S&P, which has done pretty well. Well, there's two things here. One, I'm confused because we keep going back from our markets, you know, where where China-based companies are listed, and that's what I'm talking about. And you're talking about mainland China markets, uh, which are a completely different issue and and, and largely unrelated. Uh, And, yeah, I mean, they're... they're... Well, I think, don't they, I mean, I thought that, uh, you know, they... The Shanghai Composite 300 has these companies in it, doesn't it, or no, not? No, no, it does not. No, it doesn't have Alibaba, Tencent, no. or any of those companies no. in it. No, 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 no. They they can delist and go back home. Some of them could be ADRs through Hong Kong, uh, but no. Uh, if you're listed here in the but United States, I would States, imagine an ETF that was just based on those have has way outperformed the S and P over the last twelve years. Wouldn't you say so? I would say the MSCI index uh, yeah. has has certainly outperformed, uh, and it's. But this then is, how can you say they've stolen? I mean, if if the investor. I mean, you're right. There's probably frauds in there, and I, I don't doubt that. But yeah. overall, if a, if a group of investors has done better than American companies, um, it's hard to maintain that they've stolen. Well, that's a fact. I mean, I mean, it's it's an empirical fact that they've stolen. The investigations have been in. Well, there's, there's the, some that have frauds, right? But overall, yeah. investors have done pretty well. Well, I mean, look, just because you make seven percent. Uh, doesn't mean that you know you shouldn't have made ten. Is it well, okay. is it okay but, if but, it's a skim? Know. I mean, it really it well, really is know, a skim. Stealing some, I'm sure they're stealing in Russia too. I mean, I mean, I'm sure they're stealing in many of these emerging market countries. It's a matter of scale. It's a matter of scale. Well, Russia, I think you know, is has as we know a lot of problems. I mean, you probably read the book Red Notice, Bill uh-huh, Browder, uh-huh, uh-huh. and you know yeah. he details what's happened in Russia. Yeah. Well, um, I, I, I think that if you want to compare um, the China markets to Russia, I'm not sure they would be happy with that equivalency, but I'm fine with it. Um, okay. Let me uh, sort of change topics a little bit. So going back to when in the professor's opening, he, he talked about the Supreme, Supreme Court issues. Any, yeah. any thoughts on, on how that's going to play out? No. Uh, I, I can't predict what uh, President Trump's going to do there. 
uh, I would, I would, you know, imagine um, he likes to move forward quickly. It wouldn't surprise me uh, if he nomin- nominated somebody quickly. Uh, I don't know that that's the best move in the world. Uh, I would settle for just having the best judge, uh, the most qualified judge, not the most partisan judge, uh, somebody that Democrats could feel good about as much as Republicans. Uh, I, I really hope that we don't go out there and just pick somebody that would be so distasteful uh, to uh, the Democratic Party that it's going to be a problem for everybody. Well, I mean, in the last 20 years, unfortunately, and I mean, I agree with the, the sense of your statement, that unfortunately, it has been very partisan yeah, for the I agree. Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, I... I, I uh, it would be a big surprise if, if Trump suddenly, you know, changed positions and said, I want to get something that the Democrats could support. I mean, he has a, uh, you know, a uh, two-vote edge in the Senate. Uh, the filibuster rule is gone. Um, if he has no Republican senators uh, opposing a nominee that he picks, he can push that through before the midterm elections. Yeah, but is it the right thing to do is the question. And I think that's not... Not enough of our politicians ask that question of themselves. Uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not running to, for Congress to be like everybody else in Washington. Do you think it was, do you, let me ask you, do you think it was the right thing to do for the Republicans uh, to nix Garland as a nominee for a year to make sure that if, we won, if the Republicans won, uh, they would have the choice? I thought Merrick Garland was a, a pretty good pick, I mean, and conservative. Uh, so I, I would have liked to have seen him on the, on the court. I'd like to see him on the court today. Uh, but, yeah, you're right. This goes back to the Biden rule, which is now called the McConnell rule. And and it's this bipartisan, uh, uh, you know, uh, not bipartisan, but this partisan. Um, you sound like a more moderate Republican. Well, uh, look, I think we all are. I, I think we're all well, tired we're of it. All. <laughs> well, well, look, I, I am. I, I'm, I'm okay, tired. Yeah, I'm talking about you, I, mean, I, I think that's good. I'm much more of a mainline Republican myself, but it's gotten fiercely uh, partisan, and you're either you know Trumpian or non-Trumpian, and I think that's very unfortunate. Well, that's not um, the job I'm applying for. I'm applying to work for the people, uh, and, right. and and I think the legislature should work for the people, and I support or I don't support any president one issue at a time. Uh, and our legislature for the last 20 or 30 years has ceded all of its power to the executive branch, mm-hmm. and it gets worse and worse every day. Yep. We we only have two branches of government that work at all, and the legislature isn't one of them. <laughs> it also has the lowest uh, public opinion. Uh, well, they earned uh, it. Numbers of almost any institution, public or private, in in the United States. Well earned. <laughs> Professor, so um, we're running out of time on the first part of the program, but we're going to continue our discussion with Dan David. He, a founder of Geo Investing, running for uh, Congress in Pennsylvania's 4th District. You're listening to Behind the Markets and SiriusXM 111. We'll be back after a short break. Here for this half hour with Dan David. Uh, he is running for Congress in Pennsylvania's 4th District. Had an interesting start of the show talking about your background, Dan, on your work featured in the China Hustle and all the, the work you uncovered in sort of frauds going on in China. Um, but maybe we could talk a little bit more about your background and, and just the, the race that you're in for this 4th District. Um, maybe talk a little bit about 
you know, the district itself, it's uh, sort of the background. Is it, is it Republican, Democrat bias? What are you up against in, in the race that you're, you're here? Uh, well, the district is new. Uh, the the uh, Everything has been realigned. And Montgomery County uh, was four, five districts at one point in time prior to uh, the, the PA Supreme Court ruling and really had no federal power in being in five districts. Uh, and now Montgomery County, the second wealthiest county in Pennsylvania, is largely just one district, the fourth district. There's a little carve-out in Lansdale and a tiny little carve-out in Lower Marion uh, that are not in District 4, and we have a little bit of Berks County in there. And, you know, I would describe the county as, as pretty even. I mean, uh, the number in voter registration would probably be Democrat plus 6. There's 12 to 14 percent independents. Uh, we're a very independent-minded county and kind of purple, really. Hmm. So maybe what are, what do you think are going to be the hot-button issues this year that you're – you know, I, I, I you look down your issues page and, and see what you're focused on. But it, it, at the highest level, where do you think that separates between you and your uh, who you're running for against on the Democrat side? I I think what separates us most is our solutions, uh, and and we have to have a, a solution based debate. Uh, I've I've asked my opponent Madeline Dean for a debate 39 days ago. I guess it was now. Uh, I've I've not heard back. We've got several venues we could use, but. Being that this is a new district, and some people don't even really know what district they're in, I think they deserve more interaction between the two candidates uh, to talk solutions and talk issues. Uh, you know, what separates us um, are pro-business. Uh, and, you know, I, I agree with, with having less red tape. I see what's happening with the economy. I mean, you heard about it at the top of the show. I mean, our growth, look at this, we, you know, we could hit 3%. Uh, and... You know, unemployment is, you know, the lowest it's been in 20 years. Uh, our minority unemployment is the lowest it's been in statistical history. Uh, so this is good. And I, I've been talking to uh, people hiring. And, you know, I, Madeline, I had, I had heard her talk about she's, you know, for free health care for everybody, Medicaid, Medicare for everybody, and free college for everybody. And, you know, it, it just doesn't work. And I'd like to hear more details on that. Who's paying for that? Because whenever I hear free... I put my hand on my wallet. Uh, it just doesn't work. Uh, and as far as free college goes, the jobs that are out there right now, you know, are heavy equipment operators and things of that nature, they just they can't find them. Well, I mean, why are we such an inventory? Um, glut, I mean, uh, so low on inventory for housing. We're not we're not finding the people to build them now after the layoffs and the labor market had changed. And, and we need more people that can run heavy machines and, and build these things. We need more plumbers, electricians, things of this nature that don't take free college. I mean, if you're going to give somebody free anything, they're going to go. But that's not what we need. We need more trade schools. Uh, we need more training. I look at our school system right now, and how many kids do you think graduating high school can balance a checkbook? Hmm. Yeah, do we teach personal finance or economics in, no, in those classes? No, and we, I don't know, largely we don't even teach civics. Uh, but how many of them know anything about the stock market? And by the time they're 30, they're like, wow, I really wish I knew more about what was happening with my money in the stock market. But we don't, we don't teach them the biggest financial mechanism that's going to play the largest role in their life for the longest period of their life, what the stock market is and what it's for. And so education, I mean, it's interesting. We had on uh, one of our first podcasts from this, uh, this program, we had uh, Pat Harker, who's the head of the Philly, Pre uh, Philly Fed and he used to be the dean of Wharton. He was the dean of Delaware. And he uh. made this a similar comment as what you just said, that 
too many. Well, I don't know if you just said I don't want to put words in your mouth. He said too many people are going to college that we need more apprenticeships. We need more trade schools where people shouldn't be going to college. Is that how I mean on your on your issues page? You write the United States ranks first in world education spending, yet we fall into 30th in math. Like what's you know, talking about solutions. How do we fix that? Yeah, well, that math doesn't work, does it? No. Uh, it's so it's, it's not all about spending and it's not all about partisan issues. It's all about doing things, you know, in a smart way and looking at other models of education around the world that are better than ours and, and trying to emulate that. And, and it's, look, there's a there is a class of student that can be identified rather early. that should probably be in, you know, specialized schools that are that are really going to challenge them. Uh and then there are some students that can't keep up to that. But we're, we're teaching down to the lowest common denominator, the lowest standard we have, rather than teaching up to the highest standard we have. Uh, and, and it's not going to create a class system if we have good-paying middle-class jobs like in construction and heavy equipment uh, operation. Look, my wife's uh, father was a plumber. And her mother was a, a, an RN nurse, emergency room nurse. And they sent six kids to Catholic school. And you can't get more middle income than that. Uh, their priorities are in order, and that's that's what America's all about. Uh, so and it just it just really appears to me that promising free education and promising free health care is is rhetoric more than it is possible. What are the other big issues you think are, are sort of battlegrounds for you uh, versus Ms. Dean? Well, I mean, I'd, I'd love to have a conversation about global finance because you know I think I think that most politicians want to keep politics local. And I understand that Tip O'Neill made the the very poignant point uh, 30 years ago that all politics are local. And and that might have been more true 30, 40 years ago. But now I make the point that all local politics are global. And if you don't have an understanding of global finance and how the world works and how you're treated in treaties and how you're treated in trade, then Montgomery County is going to fall behind because Montgomery County has a lot of global companies, and they need representation in that way at the federal level. I may not know where every pothole in Abington is, uh, but I do know where a lot of the potholes in the world are. And so the, in, in Montgomery County particularly, we have a lot of health care, so the big employees are, are Merck. Merck. Merck would be the biggest, yeah. You've got Pfizer, you've got GSK, you've got Dow and DuPont that are sharing space with Pfizer. And so there are, there are a great many insurers. Uh, it's It's... It's a highly educated county. Uh, it's um, it's got a blue collar roots in West County, which are great, uh, but it's uh, it's also very um, um, skilled. So, do you have any major healthcare battlegrounds? Are you saying she wants to provide free healthcare to all? How do you maybe how do you differentiate your healthcare policies? Well, I think we have to identify why healthcare is so expensive uh, before we we talk about what's free and what's not free. Why is it so expensive? Uh, and you know there there are points to that. I mean, why are drug costs so expensive, and what problems do drug companies face in producing their drugs? Because you know you you hear about these innovative drugs that can cost a billion dollars to produce, and I believe that's true. And it's it's like shots on goal because you've got twenty of those drugs that you're trying to produce, and you know, only one of them goes in the net. So really, you spent twenty billion dollars producing this innovative drug, and then it you know likely can get stolen by another country. So we've got to fix some of these problems and bring these costs down and help companies like Merck and Pfizer and GSK. Uh, we've got to look at the hospital stays and costs. I mean, 
I, I had um, people come here from other countries and, you know, unfortunately they have a heart attack, they get a stint, and, you know, that's a, it's a $300,000 stay, you know, it's $6,000 in India. So why do hospitals cost so much? I think it has a lot to do with tort reform. And that's not something Congress wants to talk about. There's a lot of lawyers in Congress. Yeah, I, that, that was one of the things that I really found when I was lobbying Congress for three years on behalf of you know our rights is a 43 percent of our congressional members are lawyers. And look, it's nothing against lawyers, but like 0.04 percent of the population are lawyers and 43 percent of Congress are lawyers. And tort reform is, is, is something very much so needed just in the healthcare realm by itself. Uh, as, as well as trial lawyers and things of this nature, because I, I've been sued by a great many of, the, many of these China frauds, right? So they'll sue me for $250 million to prop up their stock before they get delisted. I mean, the lawsuits end up going away uh, and these companies get kicked out of the country. But who do you think is representing them to sue me? An American law firm, yep. right? Now, try and go sue that company in China. You won't get representation there. And that's the kind of unfair trade practice and, and, and protectionism that we need to fight against. We're talking with Dan David, who's running for Congress here in the 4th District of Pennsylvania, um, and talk about the major issues, uh, the battlegrounds we be facing in the upcoming election. Um, one of the issues, and Professor Siegel commented at the top part of the show, that you seem like a, a moderate Republican. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, one of the issues that, uh, it seems like a Democrat-Republican issue, but sort of one of the things you're seeing more in in coming up in different states, cannabis as, as one of these things that uh, sort of talk about medical yeah. medical issues. What do you believe about medical marijuana, cannabis, and, and how does that contrast with some of the other Republican parties? Well, I'll answer the last part of the question first. I don't care uh, how it contrasts with any of the other Republicans. I don't care if I'm called moderate. I don't care if I'm called conservative. I just care if people know I'm telling the truth uh, and whatever that means. Uh as far as cannabis as as a painkiller, I think it's long overdue, and it makes me wonder why. Uh, it, but I've, I've got somebody on my staff whose mother has multiple sclerosis, and uh, she really fought medical marijuana and just thought the, the stigma attached to it really more than anything else. And he finally got her uh, to a doctor. And it, this isn't like, you know... <laughs> some 60-year-old lady sitting around smoking pot, right? I mean, this is a gel or, or some kind of spray for underneath your tongue. And, and it's really changed her life in the last six months where she's up and walking around rather than being on opioids, which just, you know, knock you out and put you in bed. Everybody wants to give you fentanyl now. Everybody wants to give you the strongest drug possible and just make you feel nothing. And, uh, you know, there there are better ways. And I'm glad that that cannabis is being looked at more closely because I don't believe that it has uh, the more severe addictive properties, uh, or at least not as much as, as opioids, not by far. Well, and so why do you think the Republicans have, have resisted that generally? I really don't know. I, you know, it seems so silly to me. I don't know. I, it, it's so obvious that it helps people. And if it's regulated and it's good for people, uh, it, you know, maybe it's something to do with the drug companies. I'll have to speak to them. But it seems like you got could... some in your county. Huh? You got some in the yeah, county. Yeah, I'd like to talk to them about it. I mean, it's something that they should be involved in. Yeah. Uh, but I really don't know why. It, I guess it became a stigma for so long that people just get caught in their dogma. The same reason some people say I'm voting Democrat no matter what. I'm voting Republican no matter what. That's just, you know... That's what got us here. If you're not going to listen to the issues and not going to pick the better candidate, 
that fits your issues, then you get what you get, and we have what we have. Now, now one of the issues um, you have listed on your on your issues page is is, is Israel, so the Middle East politics yeah. is is one. How does that tie into the the fourth district, or what's your views on on Israel? Well, I mean, of course, Israel is you know our, one of our closest allies, uh, and and they are. We just have to think about for a second what it's like uh, to to be surrounded by people who want you dead at all times. It's you know we think we have some terrible things happen in this country with domestic terrorism from time to time. Uh, you know, you live in Israel, and it's not uncommon to have a rocket propelled grenade land in your backyard. They call that a Monday. Uh, so you know, we have to understand how difficult it is for them. And I like being a part of the peace process, but we have to say first and foremost, number one, Israel's sovereignty is tied to the United States sovereignty. If you're trying to take it, you're trying to take ours, and we're going to defend it. Now, we're not going to agree with every issue that Israel has, but where it comes to sovereignty, that is a deal breaker. It's a red line. Uh, now, I do believe in a two-state process. Uh, and um, we should end there. But I think regional partners have to get involved there because if you can't get Iran and Saudi Arabia, some two biggest actors there, and you know Iraq and some of the Egypt and some of the others involved in a solution, that buying into this solution, then it may not be a lasting peace. And and we do need a lasting peace there. Yeah, no that that's also a very a, a, a lot of heated geopolitical issues come center from that. Um, as you, as you think about what the, you know, just as the historical Democrat and Republican views, I think about sort of Jewish votes have often been very Democratic. Yeah. Now, and you're sort of running Republican. I mean, how do you see that line up? Well, I, from what I've seen over the last 10 or 15 years, the, the, the Republican Party has been um, really better on pro-Jewish issues, both here in the United States and in Israel. Um, I think, you know, going back to Roosevelt, where that changed and, and most of the Jewish voter went Democrat, it's just become this this real ethos that we vote Democrat. And it's largely been, I think, on social issues, you know, a social moderation, which I understand. I mean, we we have to be a people that gets along. I don't consider my enemy to be somebody in a different political party. That's a fellow American that we need to sit down and talk to and work it out with, which is what we don't do in Congress. Uh, our enemies are abroad. Uh, and we need to understand that those people are trying to get us to fight about wedge issues rather than work together. Uh, but, yeah, I, I think that the Jewish community in general more and more is really looking at candidates on an individual basis and crossing lines. And I hope that, that continues because it doesn't do anybody any good just to uh, blindly pull a lever. Yep. So let's try to go back to, I think, one of the points, uh, you know, Professor Siegel thought this year, coming into this year, there's going to be uncertainty around the market yeah. because of the elections. Yeah. And, I mean, do you have the sense that there's going to be political uncertainty for, around the elections? Do you worry that Republicans will lose the the Senate? And uh, or and have any any thoughts on just how politics are impacting the markets right now? Uh I, I worry that Montgomery County is going to lose an opportunity to have a, You worry about a, yourself in this, yeah, this current election. To, to, to have me as a, as, as a congressional person for them, representing them for the next, you know, six to eight years. Uh, I, I, I think we can really help. Our campaign can really help with uh, representing Montgomery County and the global community as well as the local community in the state. Uh, 
I, I, I try not to get involved in things that are just completely out of my control. The stock market yeah. is going to do what the stock market is going to do. I'll agree or not agree um, depending on, on the issue that, that comes up. Uh, you know, I'm nimble enough on the investing side that you know, I'll be fine, but most people are not. And, and I hope that our politicians understand that. But we do have to, we do have to stand up for free and fair trade. I'm, I'm for a global economy, absolutely. But it's fair trade that, that we're looking for. Uh, and that should be an evolution, not a revolution. And I hope that you know, our president and our legislature and everybody else doesn't try to make this into a revolution of a change. And, and we can evolve into it. Any other sort of jobs-related issues? I mean, that's a big uh, you know, discussion. We're at unemployment at, at historical lows. You Congratulations talk- to us. Congratulations. I mean, what do you, what do you think, given just, just low unemployment, the questions are to keep growing the economy, you either need to bring more people back into the workforce uh-huh. or raise productivity. Uh, either areas you think you, you have some policies you think the, we should be doing as a country to either well, raise labor force participation? Well, here's, here, here's two things that are, that are very uh uh, local. Uh, number one, um, we hadn't talked about the opioid crisis, and, and we should because Philadelphia uh, has the most potent heroin in the country, and uh, it's at less of a cost than New York, Miami, and Chicago. How how we're number one in both those categories is baffling to me, and really a pox on both our houses, state legislature and 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 Senate, uh, and and them making this their number one issue in their campaign is laughable because it happened under their watch. Hmm. Uh, what are we really doing about it? Uh, and I think, again, that's getting to the root of the problem uh, rather than, you know, our solutions are more beds, uh, which is fine. We need more beds because this is where we are. But if, if, if that's solving the problem today, pretty soon we're not going to have enough beds. We've got to get to the root of the problem. Uh, and as far as how do you get more workforce, we have the workforce especially in in the Philadelphia and Montgomery counties, what we're lacking is infrastructure. And I know it's not a sexy topic, right? But transportation and infrastructure in and around Philadelphia and Montgomery County is terrible. It really is. When, when you've been around the world and you see that they have trains in third world countries that can move at 200 miles an hour or 250 miles an hour and stay on the tracks. The Northeast Corridor and Amtrak. Yeah, well... There's that, but there's also SEPTA and and what we're dealing with. We could have a lot more in the workforce if we didn't have this kind of spoken wheel uh, um, infrastructure on on trains and mass transportation. So, you know, when when we take people off the SNAP program and we say, look, you have the ability to work, you can't be on on the SNAP program anymore, but they can't get to work, that's really setting them up to fail. Uh, So I, I was very happy when the president started talking about infrastructure being one of his main issues. Uh, I agreed with him there. And it seems like the Republican Party and, and other parts of the Democratic Party are just stopping it. It always gets stopped. And and it definitely is important in this area for jobs. I mean, when you think about, again, the declining labor force participation rate demographics, where mm-hmm. we are, baby boomers entering retirement, and we are at this historically low unemployment rate. So how do you grow the economy? Well, one of the ways we've grown the economy is bringing in more people. And yeah. so immigration is one of the issues that uh, you know Trump talks about a lot. Any policies that you view on how you know should we be bringing in you know the HB one H one B visa issue? Something I have some experience with trying to, to keep really strong people that just couldn't get their lottery. Um, any yeah. any view on on just bringing in good people? 
Well, again, it's it's evolutionary change rather than revolutionary. So I believe the best and the brightest is pretty good conceptually. But rather than you know a revolution that H-1B goes away and we're going to this one program, we don't quite know how it works yet and if it's going to be better, maybe the H-1B lottery program becomes half of how you get in here and, and we start the best and the brightest, brightest program alongside of it. It's like A-B testing that you do on messaging that you do in any kind of product development. Um, is best and brightest the best? Notionally, you think it might be a better program, but let's run it alongside the H-1B program as we as we slim that down and see. Uh, but at, at a certain level, you want the H-1B program to, to still be there to some effect, whether it's 10, 20, 30 percent of the immigration, because, you know, you want people around the world to have an opportunity to be here, even if they're not a genius. We're in our closing minute. Um, I guess sort of I'll give you the chance to Make any any sort of final concluding remarks. Anything you want people to know about you and your 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 application for the fourth Congress uh, seat here in Pennsylvania. Well, look, I, you know, the, as I've said before, I'm applying for a job to report to the people. And it's a, it's the most important title in the world, public servant. Uh, I never grew up wanting to be in Congress or to run for office. This has all been catalyzed by the ineffectiveness that I saw in Washington over three years. The only bipartisan thing that was ever done in the last three years was to stiff arm me and and not listen to the issues or fix these issues. And it really upset me. Um, this is a lose money proposition for me. And that's fine as long as we get some things changed. Uh, and it's about private citizens going into service and then coming back out of service. When I started talking about too many lawyers in Congress, somebody came to me and said, well, what do you want in Congress, dairy farmers and plumbers? Yeah, that's what we want. <laughs> that's representative of the people. Very good. We've been talking with Dan Davis. He's running for, again, the fourth – Dan David for fourth uh, fourth district Congress position. You're listening to Behind the Markets here in Sirius XM 111. You can listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast. Have a great week, everybody. Don't forget to check out Behind the Markets Live every Friday, 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM's Business Radio, Channel 111. Join us next week for another edition of the Behind the Markets podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton.